0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites, or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Be the most valuable business.
1: Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Hey, it's Sean Elling, and we've got some exciting news to share. This show, the one you're listening to right now, is getting a new name and new art when I take over full-time hosting on October 13th. It's going to be the same great show, asking big questions with no easy answers. We'll just have a new name and look. We'll have more to share about all that soon, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Stay subscribed. Now, let's get to the show. Are we setting parents up to fail? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Setting children up for success in today's world is incredibly hard. In our culture, it's especially hard because the job of giving kids everything they need largely falls to parents. And even if you're the most attentive and loving parent in the world, it's not enough. And that's because kids need so much more than what loving parents alone can give them. If they're going to succeed in this society, they need to learn certain kinds of skills. And they need certain kinds of people to teach them those skills. Schools are supposed to do this, but kids spend the vast majority of their time outside school. And the most crucial period of development for kids occurs before they even get to public school. The gaps that emerge during this time are one of the great drivers of inequality in our country. Economist Nate Hilger thinks of children as the largest disenfranchised minority group in America, and that parents are being failed along with their children. His new book called The Parent Trap argues that it doesn't have to be this way, and that we can change it. I invited Hilger onto the show, And we started with this basic thesis. What is the parent trap?
2: The parent trap is at its most basic level, the egregiously unrealistic expectation that we place on parents to build a huge range of important skills in children early in their life. The consequences of that unrealistic expectation, it's a a lot of social problems that cost us both emotionally and economically. The other aspect of the parent trap beyond these unrealistic expectations is the difficulty we have talking about that basic trap. Because once we start saying that some parents are struggling in certain ways and it's correlated with race and class, it sounds so threatening. And it just shuts down the conversation. And that is also, I think, an important part of what keeps the status quo in place. What are those unrealistic expectations? Well, to begin life, children have to pick up not just, you know, the famous academic skills like literacy and numeracy, but they have to get this wide range of other skills, social, emotional, behavioral skills, things like self-discipline, things like Tenacity, financial skills, how to take care of yourself mentally and physically. There is a wide range of these skills that really are the foundation of children's independence and success in adulthood. And building those skills turns out to be a lot more complicated and difficult than we have assumed for hundreds of years. And that makes it really hard for individual parents to do it successfully on a level playing field in their spare time. Yeah. And I just
1: want to acknowledge something that you acknowledge for very good reasons at the beginning of the book, which is that what you're saying might upset some parents when they hear it or read it, because you're kind of implying that many of us, I am a parent, cannot do what we really want to do, what we're trying to do for all kinds of reasons beyond our control And you point out that this reaction is very understandable, but also a reflection of how deeply we've internalized the parent trap, that merely talking about it sounds like we're blaming parents, but we're really doing the
2: opposite. That's right. What I try to point out in the book is that we need to start viewing this activity of child skill development in a different way to make this whole conversation a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I argue that we, should be viewing child skill development more like we view other professional complicated activities like building a house or flying an airplane. As parents, we don't feel bad when we have to hire a pilot to fly us across the country by buying a plane ticket. We don't feel bad when we hire professional architects and construction workers to build our homes or to you know, buy a home that was built by a professional architect and construction team. We feel like these are, such complicated specialized skills that we expect to outsource them, and we don't feel ashamed of that. And I think that's how we need to start thinking and talking about many aspects of child skill development. Another aspect of this whole problem that can help make us feel a little more comfortable with it is that this is, in fact, what affluent parents already do in many respects. They pay professional tutors and counselors and coaches To do complicated things to benefit their children and help develop their skills that they don't have time or expertise to do themselves. Yeah. And you became a parent while working on
1: this book. I'm sure that must have changed how you thought about all of this or how you thought about the urgency of the problem. You know, it, it certainly resonated with my experience so far as a parent of a three year old. My wife and I are very fortunate in lots of ways. We only have one kid at the moment. We live in an affordable place, we have flexible schedules, but it's still so overwhelming so often. And I constantly worry that I'm not doing it right, or that I'm focused on the wrong things, or that I don't have the time to do the things I should be doing, even if I understood (laughs) what those
2: things are. Yeah. And I'm not sure I do, you know? Absolutely. Oh, man, I really relate to that. Yeah, I'd spent about five years working on this book, and I became a parent probably four years into it, And it was very strange when I told people I was working on a parenting book for that beginning period of time, and they said, boy, people are really gonna react to you not being a parent yourself. I am really proud to say that having a kid did not change the substance of my arguments in any way. Having a kid only reinforced my sense that this stuff is really hard and we really need more universal access to professional support, tutors, teachers, counselors, coaches. What it did kind of wake me up to is this more subtle parent trap that you easily can feel threatened or judged as a parent. That level of exhaustion and anxiety and fear that a lot of parents experience and that constant worry that somebody's gonna realize that you don't know what you're doing and you're actually a bad parent, that sort of secret anxiety that you fear somebody might call out, it's just a powder keg, man. And I do feel that much more personally now.
1: Oh man, I I learned this so quickly. When I became a parent started interacting with other parents, you simply cannot bring up questions about how to raise kids or what we should be doing in terms of what we should be teaching or how we're teaching it or whatever to other parents because, man, people get so defensive about it because it, it's a reflection of something really deep and our values and to question or suggest anything seems like an attack on something really core and it's just like you said, it's a powder cake. It's just really hard to talk about it. And so I just learned to not do it right. (laughs) People got to make their own decisions with their own children for better or worse. And they're not going to listen anyway. So
2: yeah, I hope the book can kind of help people feel both more motivated that their work to help do their best to build skills in their child is really valuable and that they're doing a real service not only to their child but to the broader society and to feel validated about that effort and that sweat and all night labor that they put in all the time, but also feel a little more relaxed that of course you can't do it perfectly because it's psychotically complicated. And we're asking too much of individual parents right now and it's okay. And maybe it can even help parents kind of talk shop a little more comfortably around like how to do things better. Let's get
1: specific here. You know, you identify Two different kinds of parental responsibilities in the book. One of them is caring, and the other one is skill building. And these are different things, but we've combined them under this common umbrella of parenting. Pull these things apart for me. What is the difference between the two? And I really want to focus on skills because it's so important to the argument you make in the book that skills are actually hugely
2: predictive of success in life. Yeah. The main difference between these two jobs that all parents have, caring and skill building, is that most of us can do a pretty good job at caring. Caring, it has this egalitarian feature. It's kind of like driving a car. Barring people who have kind of exceptional cases, they're missing limbs or something like that, most people in day-to-day life can drive their cars. And I think that's true for caring. Caring, I think about as loving kids and feeling personally invested in their success and, being there for them when they're sick or when they're unhappy, helping them laugh and grow and navigate life as best you can. Caring also involves some of the most important parts of our lives, the things that give us joy and meaning and that we try to pass on to our kids, our religion, our faith, our cultural norms about you know what to expect from friendships and the value of family and tailgating at college football games and playing tennis or cooking or, you know, a lot of the cultural things that give our lives joy, and meaning a lot of parents are able to do this and pass these things on to their kids. And it's a big source of fulfillment for us as parents, I think. There's this other job of parents, which you mentioned, skill development. Skill development, I think of as the set of things that is quite hard for a large share of parents to do successfully on their own. And this involves reading, and math, but it also involves a lot of these other skills we talked about before, the emotional, social, and behavioral skills that will set kids up to thrive independently in adulthood. Building these skills with the right kinds of practice and technique and motivational skills and materials and resources and readings. And this stuff is complicated, and we only get a small part of this from our existing K-12 school system. So that seems like the key distinction to me. What kinds
1: of parents are more equipped to build these sorts of skills in their kids? I mean, is it about money? Is it about knowledge or education? Is it about having more time? Is it all of the above?
2: What? The first thing I would say is that it's pretty idiosyncratic, meaning that it's not like monolithically this group can do it and this group can't do it. In every group, there are some parents who are gonna excel at this and some parents who are gonna struggle with it. That said, there are a number of things that correlate with capacity for this kind of skill development. Income is one. If you have income, you're more likely to be able to take care of this on your own. And your own skills, your own professional skills as a parent. And that often is correlated with educational attainment and professional experience. So if you're a high-income manager, you're more likely to have the tools involved that help you do a more successful job at child skill development. If we think of child skill development like a complicated professional activity, Mm. something like being a lawyer or practicing medicine or managing a team at a company or being an entrepreneur or being a scientist or engineer, if you have a rich set of professional skills in another domain, some of those general skills will carry over into the other complicated professional domain of child skill development. So I think those kinds of professional skills are really what set you up for success in this other domain. Not necessarily by any means. We know we all know high income, high education, super successful professional parents who are not good at helping their child build skills for a number of reasons. And we know the reverse too people who are not very successful professionally or academically, but are sensationally good at building skills in children. But these are the correlates.
1: Yeah, that seems like an important feature of skills as you're defining them. They're taught and learned. Yes. And they can't merely be bought and sold. Yes. You cannot go out and purchase this via Amazon. It's more complicated than that.
2: Yes, exactly. Skills are really an asset. So skills, you can think of like stocks or bonds in a certain respect. They are an asset in that you pay an upfront price and you get a flow of value over time. With stocks, it's dividends and capital gains. With bonds, it's interest payments. If you buy a home or a property, you get the value from living there or the rent from your tenant. With skills, you invest upfront and then you get a flow of value from that skill, reading or numeracy or self-discipline. And that value comes in the form of a better job or a better company if you start a business, or better research if you're a scientist. And that happens over the course of your life. And as you mentioned, you can go to the New York Stock Exchange and buy a share of a stock, and you can go to the treasury and buy a 30-year bond, but you can't go to a store and buy the skill of self-discipline and just plug it into your child. You have to teach it and learn it, and that is a really complicated process, which involves a lot of expertise. And that's why teachers and tutors need training and experience to do a good job.
1: Is it possible that some of these important skills come from experience or even adversity? And therefore, they're things that can't be taught, you know, as opposed to directly contracting, skill building professionals or expert practitioners.
2: In a sense, there's certainly an aspect of kids have to figure things out for themselves in some way. But I think we often overlook the huge amount of structure that parents place on that learning process. If a kid falls down, you know, they fail a test or they get broken up with by their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and they're really struggling. The kind of support that parents can provide through that process can really enable whether the kid learns the right lesson from it or not. It's not just that kids go off into the world and magically fail and succeed and learn and grow. That comes from feeling comfortable and confident and supported, and even more detailed kinds of support from parents in terms of like parents talking about their own experiences.
1: Can you draw a straight line from the skills learned in childhood to income earned in adulthood? That's coming up after a quick break.
3: Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. borough.com slash box can you draw a line a straight line from skills to income so it's clear to listeners why acquiring the right kinds of skills leads to
2: more financial success Absolutely. We have measures of skills that children have developed through the opportunities they've had available to them. One very narrow measure of skill is test scores. And when you give a standardized test to children in adolescence, when they're 16, 17, 18, and they're just transitioning from childhood into early adulthood, that single test score can explain three quarters of the future income differences between low-income kids and high-income kids, just by itself. That test score can also explain half the future black-white income gap that these kids will face in adulthood. So that is very compelling evidence that these skills are playing a first-order role in driving lifelong differences between class and racial groups in our country. You know, the role of money as an advantage
1: here, so I don't know, murky. Mm -hmm. You talk in the book about how the trap you're talking about really does reinforce a lot of the inequalities in our society. And you also point out that a child raised by the top 25% richest parents will end up earning about 50K more per year than a child raised by the bottom 25% poorest parents. That's pretty startling. I mean, do you think... Is the idea that
2: we live in anything like a meritocracy bullshit? (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's bullshit. I think it's not that there's no return to effort and self-initiative and risk in our society. I really do think there is. So it's not total bullshit, and I don't wanna claim that. I think sometimes progressives go way too far out on that ledge, and then people look around them and they know people who work hard and people who don't work hard, and often the people who work hard get better lives for themselves, and it just falsifies that idea that the structural obstacles to making your life better are so overwhelmingly suffocating. There's no such thing as effort or initiative. I don't think that's bullshit. Yeah. But when we talk about the average differences by class and race, then I think we do get into this idea that merit- our, our meritocratic ideals are not really where we would hope they would be. That this gap you mentioned, that kids who grow up with higher income families, as adults, they wind up earning something like fifty k more per year than their friends who grow up in lower income families. Almost that entire gap is due to the different opportunities that these kids get in childhood. And so that is just directly in contradiction with our American ideals of meritocracy. Yeah, I just wanna say, I really do agree with you there. Right? There's an overly
1: deterministic way of talking about it that strips people of their agency. When it, in reality, you actually can do quite a bit to overcome that hard work and effort and willpower and all that, these things do matter. But where you start goes a long way in determining (laughs) where you end up and that matters too and these things are both true at the same time and they interact in very complicated ways and they have to be addressed in a way that doesn't blot out these distinctions or minimize any of them
2: yeah one way i try to talk about this in terms of the class difference I talk about the skills that you wind up with through the opportunities that your parents largely make available to you in childhood. I talk about that skill portfolio as a trust fund. Mm, Yeah, I like that. And I think we all recognize that when a really high-income kid reaches adulthood with a bank account with $5 million in it that their parents gave them to just explore life and take risks and make the most of their opportunities, we all recognize that's a really unfair advantage. That's kind of a common understanding in America. We don't necessarily resent it. We think parents might have a right to do that. We have ongoing debates about the fairness of that. But most of us don't have a $5 million bank account trust fund to help us take risks. The same thing is happening. It's just invisible for regular upper middle class kids. It's just that bank account is in the form of our skill portfolio, Mm -hmm. which comes from the same kinds of parental advantages that drive the trust fund. We just don't talk about it or think about it in the same way. You know, it's just so hard to
1: tease out all the causal mechanisms here. You know, I mean, there are so many factors that influence our life trajectory, where we're born, when we're born, our parents' incomes, our access to resources, school quality, our natural
2: intelligence. How do you separate all these things out? Or can you? Well, there's this growing ability to do this in social science that I think is this really exciting revolution in our understanding of these issues. It comes from two things. It comes from the big data revolution, yeah. which is giving us sort of better telescopes to see the impacts of different interventions up close. In the book, I talk about one of these really exciting data sets that I was fortunate to work on, the IRS Data Bank, which has information on people's childhood circumstances and then connects them to their adult outcomes in their 30s and increasingly as time passes in their 40s for you know tens and hundreds of millions of kids, basically all kids in America. We've never had a data set like that before in this country. The only data sets that connected child opportunities to adult outcomes, they typically had a few thousand kids. So this is just a sea change in what we can see in these kinds of data. And then we also have this parallel revolution in our statistical methods called the credibility revolution, which is isolating causal impacts of specific childhood opportunities on kids' long-term outcomes. And it's no longer just a correlation which mixes together all the murky factors you talked about a lot of the time. More and more, it's about like, okay, this kid had this specific teacher when they were in third grade, or this kid had this specific state Medicaid program when they were five years old, and we can see the impact of that specific intervention on the child's long-term outcome, and what we're finding is that the impacts are often very large. What is in that IRS database? I, I think a lot of people will hear that and go, "Wait, what? What the hell is that?" Um Yeah, what's in there? Where did it come from? The IRS data bank was an initiative that the IRS started, and it was an effort to improve American tax policy. Okay. The whole point of this resource is to approve American tax policy, but taxes cover a wide range of human activity, and they contracted with some of our country's best economists, and they. Built, with this group of consulting economists, a set of data that really put together American tax records into a form that could be used to more effectively learn about and improve the U.S. tax system. And as part of that project, it linked up children in the tax system because children are claimed by their parents to get exemptions and deductions. And it linked up those children to their adult outcomes as they grew and became taxpaying adults themselves. Okay. So if parents
1: can't reliably handle teaching the necessary skills to their children, who should do that and who's going to pay for it? And I ask because you even nod to this in the book. I think when you describe skill building, most people immediately think of school. Schools have teachers and coaches and counselors. School seems like precisely the kind of skill building institution you're advocating. So where's the disconnect? What's wrong about this assumption that this is what schools are for, this is what schools do?
2: That's a great instinct. And you're right, school does have a lot of the elements that are necessary to help building schools. Schools hire professional teachers to a small extent, but increasingly they hire tutors, they hire coaches, and these are exactly the kinds of professionals with training and experience that we need to build complicated skills in children. The problem is that our K-12 education system is kind of a fig leaf on the real scope of the problem here. We talked earlier about how the way kids build skills is they spend time, they learn, they practice, they imitate, they don't just buy them. So if skills happen in the medium of time, it really matters who is controlling children's time. Our K-12 education system only controls about 10% of children's time. Is it really that low? That seems really low. Yeah, that's going to come as a shock to a lot of your listeners. 10%. Yeah, let's go through where that comes from. The K-12 school system only starts at age five. So the first five years of childhood, no public support, except in some limited ways. Yeah. Once school starts, it's only operating about half of all days each year. There are weekends. Spring break, winter break, summer break, all those professional training days. When you're a parent, you're often thinking like, geez, another day off. And yeah, it adds up. Only 50% of calendar days are in school typically. And then even on those days when school is operating, it's only covering about a third of the day. If you're a parent, you feel this very viscerally when you learn you have to pick up your kid at 2.30 and you're like, wait what? (laughs) I have to figure out the rest of this afternoon myself while I have a full-time job. So when you add up all those numbers, our K-12 education system is providing the right kinds of services, but only for a small fraction of childhood.
1: That is an important point, right? I mean, kids do spend the majority of their time outside school, and that time is structured and governed by parents. And if parents don't have the time to maximize those windows, they don't have the skills and the know-how
2: to do it, or even if they do have those skills, they don't have the time, Yeah, that's a problem. To independently find the right early education environment when there are a wide range of quality across early learning environments in our country, especially if your state has a very weak regulatory regime, and then to fill up all those afternoons with something enriching and productive, and to fill up all those summers with enriching, productive, expensive summer camps all on your own, just kind of going into the world and finding it through a lot of work and labor and expertise and expenditure, that is a big part of the unrealistic expectation that we place on parents and that lead to these huge gaps between rich kids and poor kids when they transition to adulthood. Something you wrote in the book that surprised me and maybe it shouldn't have, and
1: you were just like, alluding to it here, you know, you, you write that the skill gaps, children's skill gaps by class and race, don't really grow that much during the time they spend in k through 12 schools that the large skill gap really emerges almost entirely before they enter the K through 12 system that seems really important and i guess affirms what i've always thought and what a lot of people think which is that the lack of high quality universal pre-k care in this country really is a moral and if you're right economic catastrophe.
2: That's right. I think we've had this assumption for a long time that early childhood doesn't have a lot going on and parents can kind of figure it out and the stakes are low. And for decades now, we've known that's just not the case. And the fact that our public education system starts at kindergarten when these massive gaps by class and race have already emerged in both academic and non-academic skills, as far as we can measure them, that just seems like we're kind of sabotaging ourselves as a country. It seems like we're wasting a lot, of, a lot of talent by delaying that level of public support for so long. It may be impossible to give a satisfying answer
1: to this, but do we have enough data now to say that these early childhood circumstances are, if not the most important determinant of long-term success, certainly one of them?
2: Yes, we absolutely have the data to show that this is a major driver of differences in lifetime outcomes by class and race in this country. I want to highlight here that we don't necessarily understand everything that we should about how to fill these gaps. We know a lot about how to provide good early education programs, especially if we're willing to fund them. But there are still things that we need to learn. There are some examples of early learning programs that haven't delivered the kinds of results we want. But overall, I think we are in a great position to make this kind of investment going forward when we choose to do it politically. Can I just ask? And I mean, again, I have
1: a three year old, and I'm just wondering what are the sorts of skills I could be teaching <laughs> or someone could be teaching? Because you know, if you're talking pre you K, know, we're talking before five years old, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. What are the skills ideally kids this
2: age could be learning, should be learning? I don't think we know exactly the laser sharp pinpointing skills that three-year-olds need to be learning and the exact right way to do it. I think we should have more research that gives us more of that precision. But I think the level of variation in quality in terms of just having an enriching, age-appropriate learning environment for kids in this country is enormous. So you might be worried about the exact right activity to be doing with your kid. Or should you be focusing on self-control or should you be focusing on language with that extra half an hour that you spend with your kid? But really there are a lot of kids who spend a lot of time watching TV or just on an iPad or being taken care of largely by an older sibling who is kind of distracted and not necessarily interacting with them in a conversational, playful way. Some of it is just making sure kids have somebody paying attention to them and talking to them at their level and reinforcing the lessons they're teaching themselves with their hyperactive playing and keeping them safe and making them feel attached and know that the main adult in their life on a day-to-day basis is trustworthy and safe. Those are all things that we sometimes take for granted but are quite complicated to deliver socially at scale.
1: A lot of what you're doing in this book is, I think, pushing back against some intuitions that a lot of us have or poking holes in assumptions that used to be true, but really aren't anymore. In these sorts of discussions, you often hear people make arguments about resources and the gaps between private and public schools or between public schools in high and low income areas. And the argument is always, well, we got to shrink that gap. We got to spend more money, more equitably. What is this line of argument
2: missing? Because the public education system is the main way that we try to solve this problem, we focus too much of our debate on further equalizing that very limited system. So already, when kids go to school today, they're in by far the most egalitarian part of their childhood. The spending gap between rich kids and poor kids when they're at school is approximately zero. Today. That's going to shock a lot of people, but it's been true for decades. Say that one more time. The spending gap in terms of K 12 public resources at schools attended by rich kids and poor kids in our country today is approximately zero. It wasn't always that way. In the beginning of the century, it wasn't that way. But after this school financed equalization movement that took place that shifted a lot of funding to the state and federal level, by now, rich and poor kids, when they go to school for that 10% of their childhood, they're in relatively egalitarian environments in terms of the resources that are invested now are you talking
1: about just public schools are this even true uh,
2: public schools public schools okay yeah that's a, that's an important caveat i just want to make clear yeah not the 10 percent of kids ish who are in private schools yeah but if you look at the resources that families spend on educational activities computers and tutors and test prep summer camp rich kids get 15 times more of that than poor kids privately, outside of school. Yeah. So I wish our debate on equalizing opportunity focused less on further optimizing the equality in our existing K-12 system and started expanding more into these other huge gaps in childhood where inequality is really on another level than anything we, th- we see it in our public school system. Yeah, I and mean, it's worth saying that that general picture was true for
1: most of American history. In recent decades, the federal government has really stepped up and thrown a lot more money at schools.
2: And state governments.
1: And state governments, yeah. And shrunk this gap. But what you're saying is no matter how you look at it, the real divide, the divides that really matter long term, well, that happens outside of school, within families. And it remains untouched by all this funding and all these efforts to bolster public schools. Yeah. And that's something we haven't reckoned with. And the
2: implications of that are huge. That's right. So why would we let kids show up to kindergarten with huge gaps and deficits and disadvantages and then start trying to address that? Why wouldn't we level the playing field from age zero to five by providing universal access to high quality learning environments so that these gaps aren't something that we have to address and remediate with progressive funding formulas after that age, much less successfully? Why would we focus entirely on within-school problems when kids have long summer breaks, where radical inequality re-emerges, where kids have afternoons, where radical inequality re-emerges. We really need to be filling in those gaps where inequality is enormous, rather than fixating on what is currently our quite narrow tool of the K-12 system. The frustrating
1: thing for me, at least, is that, and I know you know this because you address it in the book, there is a big chunk of the country that hears the things we're saying and immediately thinks big government nanny state you know euro style socialism yeah now I happen to believe there are good moral and political reasons to do what we're talking about doing but but if that doesn't move you out there or if someone out there isn't moved by those sorts of arguments you point out that there are also really sound economic, reasons to do this, to really change how we think about raising children. Do you want to make that case as briefly as you can?
2: Sure. I think the economic arguments are going to be one useful tool to speak to conservatives and small government types out there. I think a lot of these programs, early education, tutoring, counseling, they can yield big long-term economic dividends in terms of Kids grow up to be more independent, they earn more in their jobs, they start more companies, they have higher incomes and they pay more tax revenue. And that impact turns out to be so big that the programs wind up kind of paying for themselves, many of these child development programs. But I don't think that's really speaking to some of the skepticism that you highlight here, which I think it's really good to highlight this nanny state idea and this idea that we're America, we don't wanna become Denmark. I wanna highlight that if you accept the argument of the book that child development is hard and parents need a lot more professional support, it doesn't mean We need a big government nanny state. Here's what it means. It means we should be putting public funding into helping all parents access the kinds of local experts that rich parents already access. Nobody will be forcing parents to do things. It means that all parents will now be able to pay for excellent high quality early learning environments, maybe at your local church, depending on how the laws are written. All families will be able to help their kid get a private math tutor after school. There's nothing big government or nanny state about that. This could be somebody who you vet and you work with your school to get somebody who you trust shepherding your child through their algebra one homework. This is not some crazy government bureaucrat taking over your child. (laughs) I think that can speak to people more than the economic returns in many of these cases. It's just giving people more power as parents to do what rich parents are already doing. I think what I'm getting at here, and I
1: guess I'm just sort of worrying aloud, but this is something I've found myself thinking about a lot, especially in in the last several years. And I'll put it to you, is it possible that we're just too libertarian as a society, too individualistic, to collectively address a problem like this? You know what I mean? We have a very sort of zero-sum approach to life here, right? And I think there are a lot of people who don't care about someone else's children, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to give their children every advantage they can so that they can win
2: Mm -hmm. at this game of life here. What the hell to do about that? I don't think our society is too libertarian or small government to make big additional investments in child development. The proof of that is right in front of us. It's called Medicare and social security. People used to take care of their own parents the same way they take care of their own kids. And the result of that was mass elderly poverty and very unequal disease burdens. We fixed that together as a society by making big investments in these programs, Social Security and Medicare. Today, elderly poverty is much more rare and there's much more equal access to healthcare among our elderly. We have to start realizing that we need programs of a similar magnitude to tackle this huge child development problem. And they won't feel any more encroaching on your personal liberties than Social Security and Medicare feel right now. Do you wanna go to the doctor? The only reason you can for millions of Americans is that we have made the collective decision to embrace Medicare so that all Americans have access to modern professional healthcare. Childhood can feel the same way. Do you want your child to get literacy tutoring? because they're struggling with reading and they're falling behind in their third grade class? Well, with the kinds of programs that I'm advocating for in this book, you could. Just like grandma can go to the doctor, your child can go get the tutoring that they need without making your family go bankrupt. Yeah, and the maddening thing is,
1: (laughs) as a society, we're going to pay for this one way or the other. You're going to pay for it on the front end or the back end, right? If you continue to produce young people who don't have the skills to succeed, well, then they end up not contributing as much to the economy. They end up having more needs and greater dependencies. And those things have to be addressed one way or the other, as opposed to giving people the skills they need to succeed and prosper and flourish and contribute to their communities and the economy in ways that redounds to all of our benefits in the end. But it's those sorts of long-term arguments can be difficult to make (laughs) politically.
2: Yeah. I think what you need is not arguments and persuasion. What you need is a a way to get children and parents more political power. Yeah, You don't get these kinds of policies by persuading people necessarily. You get them by marshalling the political power of the most direct beneficiaries. And right now, elderly people, people over 65 have that with AARP and they're all retired. So many of them are retired. So they have more time to engage in this kind of activism. There's nothing like the AARP for children and parents. And there really should be.
1: That's so damn true. And I actually hadn't thought about it until I was reading your book. You know, children are actually by a mile our biggest disenfranchised minority. And because of that, that means that we adults have to mobilize for them, we have to lobby for them. And you point out that we've become a geriatric society where we overspend on old people because old people vote and we underinvest in young people, which seems totally insane, just totally insane, but that's where we are.
2: Right, I mean, if you had to pick a direction to be asymmetric in, you'd probably wanna err on the side of benefiting children rather than old people, but we don't have to make exactly that kind of harsh trade-off in our society. We could have the kinds of programs that are needed to benefit children and parents without stripping Medicare and Social Security of their funding or anything terrible like that, because those are also really important programs. When we think about how we could scale up these kinds of programs that children and parents really need, I call them family care in the book. And it's really just early education, tutoring, counseling, better healthcare for children, better college preparation and college transition assistance and apprenticeships and vocational training assistance. It's all these things that happen outside of our current K-12 system. We could wind up furthering a lot of conservative goals with a program like this. As you say, it would reduce dependency on government. It would also reduce crime. And it doesn't mean our country would have to wind up looking like Denmark and Sweden, because we could retain the more individualistic social welfare net that we have for adults in this country and just embrace the greater public investment in making sure all children are getting the kinds of opportunities they need early in their lives. So we could still have a distinctly American system. It's just that we would be harvesting a lot more of our talent, and making sure a lot more of our citizens are able to thrive independently as adults with the tools that we've given them.
1: So, what would this radical expansion of social support in the US look like? And where would we even start? I'll ask Nate Hilger. After one last short break, support for the gray area comes from green light. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where green light comes in. Together, Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team.
1: What worries me is, as you were saying, so much turns on what happens before kids even get to public school. The concern for me there is that we don't even have the infrastructure in place where we don't have a universal pre-K or anything like that, right? And so does that mean we'd have to build it from scratch? It's hard to know where we'd even start there.
2: A big investment like this would be scaled up gradually. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be like tomorrow, every kid can start going to preschool. We'd phase it in probably for the kids who need it most first. We already have Head Start, which is decades of experience in this area. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't necessarily build the new program on the model of Head Start because Head Start is very expensive and it's a good program and it it has a lot of long-term benefits. But for universal childcare, we'd probably wanna build on the existing private nonprofit ecosystem. All over the country, there are churches and public schools and independent nonprofit organizations that offer childcare. It's just that right now, only some middle-class and upper-class parents can really comfortably afford it. Yeah, And there are some states that are making big progress in this area, both conservative states and liberal states. Yeah, It's a really wonderfully bipartisan area. And so I don't think we'd be starting from scratch. I think we could make huge headway in five to 10 years. Well, one thing you do say is that schools, K through 12 schools
1: could be much more effective in building skills. You know, teachers and coaches and counselors could do a whole lot more, but they need more access to children's time, to kids' time. What would that look like? Longer school days, fewer breaks, smaller class sizes? I mean, what are we talking about here?
2: There is a long tradition in America of calling for schools to manage a larger share of children's time. It's called the community school movement. And it's arguing that Kids should go to school and have a happy, enriching place to be for basically the full workday, nine to five. This doesn't mean that kids will just be doing extra homework or cramming more or getting exhausted when they're at school all day. We have to really take that concern into account. That is a real problem. It might be that kids need to be able to rest quietly and do their own thing in a safe environment for a period of time and then recharge and do something more structured. It might be that some kids get tutoring in that extra time. It might be that some kids do something that they love, like they learn how to do audio engineering, or they do band, or they practice design or something that just interests them and doesn't tire them out. The key thing is that parents shouldn't have to do a lot of research and show a lot of proactive initiative and weed out the bad providers from the good providers with a lot of insight. It should just be parents kind of automatically sign their kids up for educational institutions, and schools can manage a much larger share of children's time in productive, healthy, happy ways.
1: What do you think is the biggest obstacle preventing parents from organizing as an interest group, which they are? I mean, look, I know lots of parents, some of them make lots of money and some of them don't, and they all are struggling in different ways to figure this thing out. Why can't parents behave like a politically mobilized interest group in the way they really need to in order to
2: change this. The biggest structural factor is probably that they're so busy and tired all the time. You know, yeah. you're, you have a three-year-old and I have a two-year-old and it's like, we're not looking for an extra hobby to help organize something. Yeah. Compared to retirees who structurally have an advantage there. They are, many of them are looking for some way to contribute to their communities and political organizing is one way to do that. Yeah. But I don't think that is a permanent roadblock on this. I think there is a real arbitrage opportunity here. I think there is a missing institution that some entrepreneurial people could provide. If parents could sign up for this easily and conveniently at the pediatrician's office, at the grocery store, at the childcare center where they already are going, and they could sign up for something like the AARP, but for parents that offered them discounts on their target or Walmart or Costco purchases or memberships or registries or their Amazon registry. Discounts on formula, diapers, car seats, strollers. If parents could do that, which is the AARP strategy, I think they would. And I think there's no deep reason why this can't happen. I don't see one either. I just, I don't know why the hell it hasn't. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very fragmented ecosystem. When the AARP began, there was not thousands of elderly advocacy groups, each with their own turf and their own agendas and their own political leanings. They kind of had a more more green pasture to organize in. And that was a big advantage. Today, we, it's not a green pasture, it's a busy ecosystem. But we have to get creative and think through that. There are organizations such as Children Now in California that is trying to coordinate these fragmented groups to speak with one unified political voice. But I do think there's still a need for this AARP-like organization, and it could happen. And I hope somebody makes it happen. If that's one thing that comes from this book, then I I will just be so happy. Well, it (laughs) it seems to me there's a megaton
1: of untapped political energy here, for sure. Yeah, yes. It's just something that millions and millions of Americans across all of our political cleavages, I think, can relate to and could, in principle, get behind. And damn it, they should.
2: They really should. The key thing is that it has to stay bipartisan and nonpartisan. The AARP does not go out on a limb and talk about gun rights. The AARP does not go out on a limb and talk about critical race theory. Whatever organizations emerge to try to represent parents politically and fill this power vacuum representing children, they will have to remain nonpartisan and show discipline and not engage in every little culture war that comes their way. I hear you, but (laughs) good luck, man a
1: global pandemic immediately became a partisan issue. Yes, that's true. So it's, it is hard to imagine anything not somehow being co-opted by that silliness, but I think you're right.
2: I think the key is offering practical benefits to individual parents. Yeah, It's hard to get too ideological when somebody is offering you a cheaper way to get strollers and baby formula. You know, it's just, it's useful to you. You know that they understand. They're not speaking to you on some, crazy political battlefield. They're just saying, hey, we understand your needs. We're here to help fulfill your practical needs. And we're also going to go to bat for you politically.
1: I just have to ask because the reality is that the changes we're talking about are big and complicated and politically difficult, which of course isn't an argument against fighting for them. But in the more immediate term, parents are doing the best they can to give their kids the best shot they can. Do you have any advice for them now or maybe places they can go for guidance on how to help their kids
2: learn the skills they need? Here's what I would say. It's something that I have to tell myself as a parent as well. I am often tempted as a parent to think, well, how bad can this be? You know, I'm doing the best I can. It's not that different from what my parents did. I turned out okay. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to go to the nearest daycare center that is on my way to work and just, I'm sure it's fine. I'm just gonna let the schools manage my child's education. You know, they're a professional school, the teachers seem nice, I'm sure it's fine. I often feel this temptation to just relax. And we do have to relax on some level. We can't drive ourselves crazy, we'll become stressed out and useless. But I don't think it's right to fall into this trap of sort of placating ourselves and trying to calm our anxiety Unfortunately, raising children does matter. All these interventions that we're talking about, they do matter. And when we get the data to compare children who get them and who don't get them later in life, we see that it has pretty big implications. And so even if it's stressful and scary, try to cut yourself some slack, realize you're not gonna be able to do everything you want and that's okay because the burden on you is unrealistic as we've been talking about, but don't necessarily take that fear and that anxiety and step back from your proactive role as a parent. You really can make a big difference in your child's life and you should be proud of doing your best at that in every way you can. And be angry if you can't do certain things that you know are valuable and keep that anger available as political energy when the time comes.
1: Well, it's one of the shittiest feelings you have as a parent. And I know a lot of parents listening will understand this, that feeling that you're not doing all you could be doing to give your kid a shot at being successful to give them some kind of comparative advantage, or at the very least to not be disadvantaging them. Yeah. And that's a terrible feeling, and it's made worse by the fact that often there's only so much you can do, right? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, this is the parent trap, right? We need help,
2: and we're not getting it. Yeah. What would you say to a parent 60 years ago, before Social Security and Medicare were big programs. And you say, hey, I have an aging parent myself. They're in their 60s and 70s. They're having health problems. They don't have a pension. They're struggling to get by in their one bedroom apartment. What should I do to help that person? The answer is whatever you can, but we really need more social support. Like you can't necessarily support your aging parent. You can't necessarily access physicians and surgeons to help them access modern medical care. It's expensive and We really need institutions to help address these problems, unfortunately, and it's stressful and you should be angry. And that anger helped get us Social Security and Medicare because people voted for FDR and the New Deal. People support Social Security and Medicare today. And that is what the kind of direction we have to go in to help parents get what they want for their own children going forward.
1: Often, I never quite know how to end these conversations, but I think I just want to say at the end of this one, Although this is a very policy-laden discussion, the stakes really couldn't be higher. It is cliche, but raising children is kind of sort of the most important job we have. And it's so hard, and our cultural values are so perverse in so many ways. If we really cared about family values, we'd recognize that we can't raise our kids without a community, without help. And our society doesn't offer it, or it doesn't offer enough, or it doesn't offer it intelligently Enough or equitably enough. Most parents out there aren't failing. They're being failed. And I appreciate you tackling this issue and doing it in a way that's designed to appeal to as many people as possible because I don't know if it'll work or if this will change, but if it can or will, that's what it's going to take. So thank you for that.
2: Well, thanks for providing the forum to talk to your listeners about this. The thing that motivated me to write this book was. The belief that we can make progress on this issue, that it doesn't have to be partisan, that we have policy solutions to these problems, that they would make a huge difference in our day-to-day lives as parents, and they would make our country stronger. The book is The Parent Trap.
1: Go check it out, people. Nate Hilger, thanks so much for coming in today. I appreciate it. Thanks
2: so much for having me, Sean. It was a real pleasure.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director. Your feedback really helps. So if you have ideas for future guests or topics or really any thoughts at all, send them to voxconversations at vox.com. And if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review. That stuff really helps. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.